you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to continue our study of Matthew and looking at noble living in, an evil, uh, in a needy world. Noble living in a needy world. Matthew chapter 8, thank you for standing as we open the Word of God together this morning. And um, as we begin in Matthew chapter 8, I want to begin reading with verse 5. And uh, we'll go through verse 13 this morning. Looking at the story of uh, remarkable faith, I've called this royal authority. Royal authority, calling on the king. It says, now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant, lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come to heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy you should come under my roof. But only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man, or also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. To my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out in outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Father, I pray that we would learn from the faith of this centurion who might have felt like an outcast when it came to the spiritual things of his day. Or he may have been dealing with great popularity and prominence because of his place in the Roman Empire. Lord, most importantly, we saw that he came to you. I pray that we would understand the significance of this that You would strengthen and establish our faith today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Years ago, I heard the legend of a soldier who came to Alexander the Great when Alexander had conquered the known world at the time. You know the story of Alexander the Great. He, he conquered the world, but he was conquered himself by the bottle and died at a young age, but when he was at a place in his life where he had pretty much conquered the known world at that time, a soldier came to him, and people could not believe the nerve of the soldier because the soldier actually asked him that he might give him an island, the entire island. Not only were the other soldiers and those who heard this surprised, but they were even more shocked when Alexander the Great said, I will grant your request. That island is yours to do with as you please. And when asked why Alexander would do such a thing, when they said, why would you give away an island like this? Alexander said, I was so impressed that he would honor me by asking. Alexander the Great said he was, he was so impressed that this soldier understood that he actually had the authority to give him the island and that he could choose to do so. 
Jeremiah 33.3, the Lord says to us, Call unto me, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. That was a challenge for Israel to experience restoration because they were in the midst of beginning to experience a great separation from God, and they were going to miss out on the blessings of God. But Jeremiah prophesied, no, you will come to a place where you will call upon me. You will seek me, he says in chapter 29, and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. But in chapter 33 of Jeremiah, he says, and call on me and I'm going to show you great and mighty things that you do not know. But Israel had to be willing to call upon him. And today we have to be willing to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew's Gospel has already shown us so much about noble living in a needy world. And now we see something, at least just a glimpse of royal authority in someone who was not even one of the Jews to which Jesus first came. Now, He came to the world. But John chapter 1 says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, meaning anybody in the world to them, He gave the right to be called the children of God. In other words, there would be those outside of the Jewish faith that would become nobility like me and like you. The Sermon on the Mount, we see that in chapters 5, 6, and 7 over the past few weeks that there are certain beatitudes, certain dispositions this kingdom citizen will take on. In chapter 6, we saw that prayer would be vital to kingdom living and we need to learn to pray as kingdom citizens. And then in chapter 7, we saw last week there can be exceptional living in this world. We can be different. That's just not for our good. That's for the impact of others. All of these kingdom principles... It's not just so we experience God's blessings, it's so that we can be a blessing and that our lives can make a difference and that we can leave this world one day knowing that we had an impact on the people around us. Immediately following the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins touching lives we see in the first few verses of chapter 8 that He heals a leper, someone who had been, had been considered unclean. Jesus is willing to bring healing into His life. Often we desire to make a difference. We want to know that our life counts. We want to know that we can touch others, and especially beginning with our own family, that somebody can be impacted for the glory of God because of our lives. But we often doubt that we can do such a thing. We might say we're doubting ourselves, but in essence we're doubting our God. The world's problems, by the way, aren't too big. It's the world's view of God is too small. Sometimes as a church, as believers, as those that we've already demonstrated in Scripture that are called royalty, those who have the blessings and the privileges of God, we often have such a small view of God that we're having little impact on our world. We can learn something about calling on the King, King Jesus, from this centurion. We, we learn something from Him about royal authority and the importance of approaching Christ. And the first thing I, I see that we learn in this text is that there is a compassionate appeal for the people around us if we're going to make a difference in our world. We will be the ones who bring that compassionate appeal to the Lord for the people around us. In verse 5, we see that Jesus has come to Capernaum. Capernaum's interesting in that this is the town 
where Peter lived. And Peter's house, the best we can tell, became kind of a a Galilean basis of operations for our Lord's ministry. Now his ministry would be a ministry of world impact, but it would revolve primarily around the region of Galilee and those trips that he made into Jerusalem where he had an impact on the religious culture of that day. And Peter's house had become kind of that base of operations. And what we see in this text is this need comes to them right close to their ministry, right close to Peter's home. And by the way, in the next passage, you see that even Peter's mother-in-law needed to experience the healing touch of Jesus in her life, and she did. And the reason I point this out right here, when I talk about a compassionate appeal for the people around us, yes, I want us to get excited about international missions, but I'm reminded often of the old statement that the light that shines the farthest will shine the brightest close to home. We need to have a compassionate appeal for those people that are right around us, most likely like Peter, starting right in our own homes. Sometimes we're not even aware of the needs in our own homes. And as we look at a a ministry center, a base of operations, by the way, the church, that's me and you. The church is the body of Christ. Those that Jesus Christ through His Spirit comes to live in. The church is not this building. It's not this campus. It's, It's not any land we might add to it in the future. The church, that's me and you. These facilities, as well as the physical building that you and I live in called our homes, our houses, those are simply ministry centers of operation. Because that's where our life revolves. And and so many times we're looking out so far for the needs around the world that we forget that some of the greatest needs are going to be those that come to us in our Capernaums, in our own homes, those that are right around us. So it starts at our home and then it looks to the area where we have a a basis for ministry. We live in a sin-fallen world and we need to become more aware of the needs in our own homes, and in our own community. The needs of the people right at our doorsteps. This centurion comes to Jesus. A centurion, There's the word centurion is two Greek words, hekaton, which has to do with a hundred, and in our case, it's the word for king. He was the one who had authority over a hundred soldiers. There may have been under... Their command, more or less than a hundred soldiers from time to time, but, but the word means literally to be in charge, uh, to be a ruler of a hundred. He comes making intercession here for someone in his own home when he had so many people that he was responsible for, so many people to give orders to, so many people to be looking out for, to be sure they were staying out of trouble and staying on the job. And yet he's focused on the needs of a servant in his home. He says, my servant, in verse 6, lying at home. It's compassionate appeal for someone in his house. His heart was at his home. He says, my servant is paralyzed. In some translations it says sick of the palsy, but the the, the paralysis, the word there for paralysis had to do with an atrophy of the nerves. So likely, this servant could not have come to Jesus himself because of the paralysis. He couldn't move. He couldn't get out. He couldn't go. 
Sometimes we feel like there are people in the world that have needs and we get frustrated. Well, why don't you go and meet their needs? But they might be experiencing some kind of physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual paralysis in their lives. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we get so frustrated, we say, why don't these dead people ask for help? It's because dead people can't ask for help. They're, they're experiencing spiritual atrophy. They can't move, they can't go, and they can't express the needs. And so, this compassionate appeal by this centurion, he's going on someone's behalf. It's a great picture of intercession and intervention. And as the church, as the priesthood of believers, we're to go to the Lord Jesus on the behalf of our family members and friends and others that may be at a place in their life where they, for some reason or another, just can't seem to get there. They can't seem to go. I know that it's a popular cliche in the religious world to say God helps those who help themselves, but the truth of grace is that God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who are stuck in a situation that they see absolutely no way out of and no hope. And so it took humility for this great centurion to model what we would call shepherd-like leadership. When I say shepherd-like leadership, Jesus said the good shepherd leads the 99 and he goes and he finds the one. And so with all the responsibilities this centurion had, he goes and he makes this compassion appeal for a servant in his house. You imagine a physician who takes care of the physical needs of thousands of people, but never listens and, and, and ministers to the physical needs in his own home. Can you imagine someone who is a, a gifted builder like some of the men in our church, and they're out building houses for people to live in all over the world, but the members of their own family, could you imagine living in cardboard boxes? We would say, no, 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 you would... You would care about what was going on in your home first. And that's what the centurion was doing. Sometimes pastors and life group leaders and deacons and Awana workers and those who work so hard around the church, we can be so busy ministering to people's needs around us, wanting to impact our world with the Gospel of Jesus Christ, going on missions trips and you name it. And if we're not careful, we will overlook the needs in our own home. That was the first ministry center, was this home. This centurion is ministering, he's interceding, he's intervening for someone in his own home. What about your home? What about your community? What about those that live right around this church or right around your house? Might be experiencing some kind of paralysis. Maybe it is literal and, and physical in nature. Maybe it's material Maybe it's emotional paralysis. Do you realize there are more people than ever, even in our own community, but especially around our nation, more people than ever that are paralyzed by something called depression. They are so depressed, they can't even get up and get out of their own house. We need to intervene on their behalf because of what they're going through. It's easy for us to point fingers. It's easy for them to kick them while, easy for us to kick them while they're down but they perhaps feel like they can't get up, they can't move. 
Maybe their spiritual paralysis is fear. Maybe their spiritual paralysis is addiction. Maybe their spiritual paralysis is ignorance. They simply do not know where to go. Or it's apathy. They don't care. You've heard the question before, what's the, what's the worst problem in America today? Ignorance or apathy? And the response was, I don't know and I don't care. It's kind of the world we live in and people are paralyzed by their ignorance, paralyzed by their apathy, their fear, their addictions, their depression. Sometimes it's a material or physical need that they do not know what they can do about it. This centurion teaches us that we need to be making a compassionate appeal. A compassionate appeal for the people around us. Secondly, we learn from him that there's a conscious acknowledgement of the power and the presence of God. A conscious acknowledgement of the power and presence of God. And this is that point where I had to kind of camp out this week as I studied this passage. Because I believe the Spirit of God was trying to tell me, Robbie, you need to be more aware of the power and presence of God at work in your life and around you because there are too many people in need that need to experience it. It was a conscious acknowledgement of the power and the presence of God. In verse 7, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Now, perhaps Jesus knew how this centurion was going to respond to this statement. Personally, I believe that Jesus wanted the centurion to articulate those things he was about to articulate because he knew that the people around him needed to experience this sermon. They needed to hear this kind of faith that was expressed by this centurion. So we see that this centurion's appeal all of a sudden becomes an act of worship. Whether he understood that it was an act of worship or not, it was definitely an act of worship because it was a conscious acknowledgement of the power and the presence of God. And that's what our worship should be when we gather together in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. It should, there should be a conscious acknowledgement of the power and the presence of God. But that should be something that follows us in our lives as we live our lives as an act of worship unto the Lord. This centurion recognized the consuming holiness. That's one aspect of the power and presence of of Christ. He recognized the consuming holiness of Christ. Look at verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. I'm not worthy that you should come to my house. I'm not deserving to be in your presence. But he was there. He was aware of the holiness, the deity, the awesomeness of Christ. It's coming to a place in our lives where we say, God is worthy, but I'm not. That act of humility brings us close to engaging that power and that presence. It protects us from an entitlement mentality, which we're going to see later in this text where we act like God owes us something. The centurion approached Jesus much like Isaiah experienced God's presence in Isaiah chapter 6. says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. God's glory had filled the temple 
And when Isaiah experienced the power and the presence of God, he said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He said, woe is me, because in such powerful presence of God's holiness, he felt that he could have been struck dead at the moment. But in that conscious awareness, in that acknowledgement of the presence of of a consuming and unholy God, God's grace meets Isaiah right where he is. He takes the coal and he cleanses his lips. And he prepares him for a great and awesome work for the glory of God. So when we come into that, that place where we feel unworthy, that's when God's getting ready to do something special in our lives. Not because of who we are, but because of His amazing grace that is willing to meet us wherever we are. Secondly, not only did He recognize His consuming holiness, He recognized His royal authority. This royal authority in the latter part of verse 8 and then into verse 9. He said, only speak the word and my servant will be healed. Then he illustrates it this way. He says, I am a man under authority. And I have soldiers under me. In other words, I have to follow orders and they have to follow orders. If we follow orders, our heads will roll. (laughs) Quite literally. We have to follow orders. We understand how it works in the Roman Empire. But he says, "I I understand something else. That is, whatever you say, takes place, Jesus, because you have spiritual authority. You have a royal authority like I've never seen before. He said, look, I, I can say go, and the soldier goes. I can say it to another, come, and he comes. I say, do this, he does it. I get it. I get authority. Because I'm a man under authority, and I'm a man that has authority over others. And when we understand authority, somebody speaks and things happen or there are going to be consequences. And Jesus, I see a royal authority in you, a royal, an authority in the spiritual domain. And He didn't command Jesus when He recognized His authority. He didn't come to Him and say, you have to do this. But he said, if you do, if you speak the word, you only speak the word, my servant will be healed. In other words, he was saying, I believe that you're able to bring healing to my servant. I believe you have all authority. In chapter 3 of Daniel, we have three Hebrew children about to be thrown into a fiery furnace. They're standing before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, you're going to bow to me, and you're going to worship me, or you're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. And they said, King, we don't have to answer you in this matter. We're not going to bow to you, and we're not going to bow to this image. We're going to worship the one true God, and our God is able to deliver us. But then they said something interesting. They said, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. So they didn't know if God was going to deliver them from the fire, through the fire. Or if they were going to step into eternity like Stephen who was stoned to death when he took the same kind of stand. 
but they knew one thing, our God is able. Our God is able. The centurion is coming, he says, you are able. Chapter 8, verse 2, when Jesus brings healing to this leper, it says, behold, a leper came to him and worshipped him. Remember? This conscious acknowledgement of the power and presence of God, it's in the context of worship. He worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You can heal my leprosy. Jesus explained, I am willing. Notice again, the leper didn't come and say, you have to heal me. He said, you're able to heal me if you're willing. Jesus said, I am willing. Many need to move from saying, if God is real, to worshiping Him and saying, Lord, I know that You are real. And I know that You have all power. See, that's the problem with most of our prayers. We we get on our face before God and we think of a situation, we think of a paralysis in our life, we think of an immovable situation, and we say, God, if you're real. When we should be praying, God, because you are real. Or we make some kind of demand or some kind of bargain and God doesn't bargain with us. We say, God, if you will bring healing in this situation, then I will do this. God is waiting on us to say, Lord, whatever happens, I'm going to serve you. Whatever happens, I'm going to worship you and you alone. And I believe that you have all power. I believe that you can bring healing into my life. I believe you can bring healing to my family. I believe you can bring healing to the community. I believe that nothing is impossible with you, Lord. And I'm here to worship you. No matter what happens, no matter what life throws at me, I am making a commitment to worship You. We're not bargaining with God. We're acknowledging who He is and who we are in His presence. We're bowing before Him in worship and receiving the blessings that come from obedience to Him. So we need to move from if God is real and able to because God is real and able. Saying like Job did when all hell broke loose in his family and in his property and he lost everything, when Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. That I will stand with Him on that day. This point, expressing our need, becomes an act of worship. Becomes an act of worship. Our supplications where we're praying for our needs or our intercessions where we're praying for the needs of others becomes an act of worship. And though we may feel like we're sometimes being selfish because we're saying, Lord, here are my needs and here are the needs of my friends and here's this family that's in this situation. Here's what my neighbors are going through. Here's what this world is experiencing today. We feel so selfish laying all our needs, but when we come with this attitude, understanding the power and the presence of God and how God can work and that He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or even imagine, when we come to Him like that, it is not selfish. It's an act of worship because we're saying, God, You are the only one Jesus, You are the only one who can meet these needs, and we worship You because of that. You're the only one that can do something about this paralysis. This kind of overlaps with this third observation, and that is the contrasting approaches to the privileges of royalty. The contrasting approaches between the religious Jews of this day and this centurion who was not a Jew by birth. Verse 10, Jesus says, 
It says that Jesus marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Hadn't seen this. Haven't seen this among the, the, the Jews. I haven't seen this in Israel during my time here. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and they'll sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, those who were meant to be part of it, God's chosen people, many of them, will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those without religious entitlement will flock to Christ with pure hearts. But many that thought they had God in a box, many that thought God owed them something, would miss out on a relationship and will miss the ultimate King. That's where the church has to be careful of the entitlement mentality. It's something we see in politics today. It's whichever party can promise us the most entitlements. We'll vote that way. We see it in the workplace today. I found this on the Earning Employee Excellence website. It says, what is the entitlement mentality? And this applies it to the working environment, and I believe you can draw the analogy and see how it takes place in the religious community as well. It says, here's the working definition. Employees behaving as though they deserve special treatment. These employees think they deserve preferential treatment to get what they want and to act as they want. Some of you have observed this in the workplace. Some of you have may, uh, may have expressed this, or maybe you are supervising <laughs> this kind of behavior. Their reasons might include seniority, longevity, employment position, credentials, informal leadership, past performance, I've earned it, special circumstances, an overly healthy ego, or something else, maybe genetic superiority. I never claimed that one. They may believe that they deserve enhanced salaries, incentives, perks, awards, appreciation, positions, working conditions, independence, or authority. They may also believe they don't have to put in extra time or effort, do the mundane or dirty work, follow the usual rules and expectations. They feel justified to complain and criticize when they don't receive their preferential treatment. They can be angry and frustrated, ranging from passive-aggressive pouting to verbal or physical attacks. Their performance suffers because they believe they are being mistreated. They may feel the right for revenge or retaliation against people or the organization. That's workplace entitlement, but it happens in the political world, it happens in our nation all the time, and it happens even spiritually when we think God owes us something. Anything short of hell is by the grace of God and through the blood of the cross. Two young men who had such an entitlement mentality, thought they had everything in this world coming to them, died in an accident. They were standing before 
St. Peter, well, you know, it doesn't really work that way, but the, all the, the legends tell it this way, right? They were standing before St. Peter, and they said, well, we were entitled to this, and we, were, we never got to experience that and, and this in life, and Peter said, you know, you're right. Peter thought, well, hey, one of these guys, he actually, um, he actually did have a few things coming his way. He's got some great rewards in heaven, but I'm going to let him ask for something else on the earth. The other guy, he had, he had never really done anything. He just thought he had everything coming to him on a silver platter. And so Peter looked at the first one and he said, well, what do you want? What, do you, what, what would you like to experience? You can take on any kind of form you want to. I'm going to send you back. I'm going to send you back to the earth for one more year. You take on any form you want. What form will it be? And that guy said, you know what? I would love to be an eagle. I always thought that the eagles are so majestic. They are so awesome. I would love to be an eagle. He said, okay, you got your wish. And the guy disappeared for a year. The next guy said, well, you know, when I live this life, I, I was kind of geeky, but I wanted to be a real stud. Could you make me just a real stud? Peter said, you got your wish, snapped his fingers, and the guy disappeared for a year. Before they ever made it back to stand before Peter again, one of the saints came up to Peter and said, whatever happened to those two young men that, that were standing before you? He said, oh, you know, at first when he wanted to be an eagle, I'm about to call him, I want you to, want you to go get him. He, he is soaring like an eagle above the Grand Canyon. Isn't that awesome? He said, yeah. He said, well, what about the one that, you know, he was kind of geeky but wanted to be a real stud? Where's he at? He goes, oh, he's a two-by-four and a plaster wall in New York City. I need you to go and get him. <laughs> Sometimes we have an entitlement mentality. Lord, make me this. I want to be that. I've got to experience this. Lord, you owe me. And God loves us so much that even though that's our attitude, He can say, I sent my Son, Jesus Christ, to die to set you free. When we come humbly before Him like this centurion, we come believing that Jesus has authority over sickness, God has authority over paralysis of all types. Making no demands, but saying, I know that my Redeemer lives and I know that you're able. He offered a humble plea. When I was a kid, we used to sing. I was sharing my testimony Wednesday night and Friday morning with a group of men. I used to stand there, Providence Baptist Church, grabbing the back row of the pew said, I thought we always sang 101 verses of this song. I think the pastor had them sing it just for me. But I never forgot the words, and most of you didn't either. Just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. That's all we've got. And that's enough. We sang it earlier. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes, by His stripes we are healed. That's our only plea. And that's enough. You bow your heads with me.